In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, on this Feast of Pentecost, uh, this 50th day of Easter, we celebrate the giving of the Spirit, and we call upon the Spirit this morning to descend upon us afresh so that we might be transformed into the likeness of Christ and, tra- and empowered for mission. And as we meditate upon the results of Pentecost and what it means that the Holy Spirit is not just with us, but in us, let us do so within the context of the biblical and redemptive narrative. This morning, paying particular attention to the Tower of Babel, covered in our first lesson, as well as the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. For the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is a reversal of Babel, and it is the fulfillment of Sinai. But before we climb up the Tower of Babel, not that we want to do that, didn't end well for them, we need to go back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden, noting that Eden was a temple. It was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. It was a gateway, if you will, between heaven and earth. And as is fitting for temples uh, in the ancient world, across cultures even today, this garden temple was upon a mountain. And that this was the case is not only maintained in ancient writers like St. Ephraim the Syrian, Uh, He wrote a wonderful book, which I'm sure everyone's read, as popular as Harry Potter, called Hymns on Paradise. (laughs) But this is also, uh, Eden is envisaged as a mountain in Scripture as well. One example, example, Ezekiel 28, says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. And he goes on to say, You were on the holy mountain of God. And Adam and Eve were to, as a way of speaking, ascend this mountain to grow in holiness and perfection and union with God. And Eden itself, this mountain garden temple, it's a mouthful, was not meant to stay as is, but to grow and to develop and enlarge. God gave Adam and Eve a vocation, a job, a mission. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Adam and Eve, and this is a way of putting it, they were commissioned to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden until it filled the whole earth. To use the language of Habakkuk, the earth is to be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So they, they have this vocation of divine ascent, right? Adam and Eve were not created. They were created in innocence. They were created very good. They weren't created in their final perfected spate, uh, state to which the church will attain uh, at the last day. There, there was spiritual growth even in their Edenic innocence. And their vocation was also outward to, again, fill the world with God's 
glory, that heaven and earth would become fully and finally one. But as we know, Adam and Eve and their progeny failed in this vocation. They did not expand the borders of Eden. Rather than implementing the reign of God, as it were, they rebelled against it. So what does this have to do with Pentecost and the Tower of Babel? Because Babel is a distortion. It is a parody of Eden in particular and the spiritual life in general. Some scholars maintain that the judgment at the Tower of Babel recorded in Genesis 11 was in part due to the failure of God's people to obey the Edenic commission. Josephus himself, who was a great first century Jewish historian, took this view writing that the people at Babel refused to obey God's command to fill and cultivate the earth. At Babel, the people in a spirit of self-aggrandizement attempt to build a temple tower, a man-made mountain, if you will, a gateway between heaven and earth. Babel is an attempt at divine ascent without divine aid, to be like God apart from God. We know the story. We just heard it. God then descends in, in judgment, accompanied, according to some traditions, this is interesting, by rushing wind. He confuses the people by giving them different languages and scatters them all over the earth, which I think even in God's judgment, that is a mercy, that he scatters them all over the earth. Get back to doing what you're supposed to do. So again, Babel is a distortion, a parody of Eden in particular and the spiritual life in general. By contrast, at Pentecost, with the disciples gathered in the upper room and devout Jews from every nation under heaven gathered in Jerusalem, people from all over the world there to celebrate the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And with them gathered, God descends first in the upper room in salvation with a mighty rushing wind, bewildering the disciples and then the people by giving them the ability to speak and understand in these various languages. The people in Peter's sermon later that day are cut to the heart by the preaching of the gospel. They're incorporated into Christ through baptism. And then they're sent out, as it were, and they're then empowered to take the life of heaven and the reign of God to the ends of the earth. Jesus said at his ascension, this is Acts 1.8, speaking of Pentecost and this not scattering but sending across the earth, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Thus, Pentecost is the anti-Babel, Babel being a kind of distorted parody, a prequel to Pentecost. At Babel, there is a misguided attempt to build a temple. But at Pentecost, the church becomes the temple, becomes itself 
the renewed Eden. Pentecost reverses Babel, and it completes and fulfills also the giving of the law at Sinai. So for the the Jewish festival at Pentecost, this is important to understand, um, was an existing festival. Pentecost, which literally means 50th, was initially, we know from the Old Testament, an agrarian festival ordained in the law of Moses in which Israel, 50 days after the Passover, would offer the first fruits of the wheat harvest. I mean, this itself, and even just in its original uh, nascent form, the festival, this itself points to Christ. Does it not? The grain of wheat which fell to the ground and died and brought a harvest of salvation and new creation and its resurrection. Christ, as Paul says, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But over time, Pentecost came to be identified with the giving of the law of Moses. For it was about 50 days after Israel's deliverance from Egypt that the Israelites relieved receive the law at Sinai. In fact, I was talking to the guys before church started, uh, a group of uh, Jews called the Qumran community, they're, they're an ascetic, ascetic sect within Judaism, referred to Pentecost as the feast of the renewal of the covenant, referring to the Mosaic covenant which was given at Sinai. Thus the giving of the law anticipates foreshadows and is fulfilled by the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. At Sinai, God manifests his presence with a storm and fire. Moses descends the law, descends the mountain with the law written on stone tablets. At Pentecost, God also comes in a storm, a rushing wind. Cloven tongues of fire appear above the heads of the disciples. The Holy Spirit, God himself, descends upon and indwells the church and writes upon the hearts of his people the law of Christ. This fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes." And be careful to obey my rules. We cannot ascend in the spiritual life. We cannot ascend to God without God's aid. The Christian life is not you in your own strength and in your own power pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to be a good person. You see, the law of Moses was good. The law of Moses was a schoolmaster teaching and preparing God's people for Christ. But the law of Moses was external to the human being. It was outside, and therefore it couldn't save. 
By contrast, the law of Christ is internal. It's written on the hearts of those who have been made alive by the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, again, we have Trinity Sunday, the Holy Spirit, you know, didn't spawn and come into being on Pentecost 2,000 years ago. He's eternal. God is eternally existent, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was present and active in the world and in what we could call the Old Testament church. We see the Spirit at creation. We see the Spirit empowering people. But Scripture makes it clear that the Holy Spirit had never been given in the way that he was given at Pentecost prior to Pentecost. And one of the reasons for this is that the Holy Spirit could not indwell the people of God as the temple of God until they were made ready. Uh, Vladimir Lossky writes this, uh, another bestseller. I know everyone reads Lossky. He writes, Pentecost is not a continuation of the Incarnation. It is its sequel, its result. The creature has become fit to receive the Holy Spirit, and he descends into the world and fills with his prescription the church which has been redeemed, with his presence rather, the church which has been redeemed, washed, and purified by the blood of Christ. Thus John writes in his gospel, the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The people of God, we had to be made ready to receive the spirit, to be indwelt by almighty God as the temple, as the new Eden. In today's gospel, our Lord says of the Spirit to his disciples, You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. In the upper room, when the Spirit comes, a tongue of fire, cloven tongue of fire, rests upon each one of the disciples. That's significant. Each one of the disciples. Fire is a sign of God's presence. And God and our God is a consuming fire. And yes, that can be an image of judgment. But for the Christian, it's an image of refinement and transformation. That the fire of the Spirit burns away the dross and the impurities. The fire transforms us. So to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit is to paradoxically stand still in the fire, in the furnace of transformation. The tongues of fire rest upon each disciple. Therefore, 
the Spirit dwells in us corporately and individually. Think about that. The same Spirit that brooded upon the waters of creation, the same Spirit that came upon the heroes of old like Samson and empowered them, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. But do we perceive this reality? Put simply, can we tell? Is there any evidence or is there sufficient evidence that the Holy Spirit does indeed dwell? in us as members of Christ's body. Are we different? Are we like Christ? Are we being transformed into the new Eden? Jesus says in John 7, quoting Ezekiel 47, which, by the way, is about this, the eschatological temples, this vision of this Edenic temple, Jesus says this, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We have... So much in Christ and by the Spirit. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And, this is important to understand, nothing that we need for life and godliness can be found apart from the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the breath in our spiritual lungs. How much can you do in the natural life without breath? I mean, I know Tom Cruise can do a lot. He can hold his breath for like five or six minutes, but that's Tom, you know. (laughs) Okay. The Holy I was just going to go way off track and talk about theta clearing in Scientology or something like that. But let's come back to the sermon since we're almost done. The Holy Spirit is the breath in our lungs. As God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and made him a living human being, so does the Holy Spirit make us alive and empowered for mission. So brothers and sisters, let us not dam up the river of life or cover the wellspring which is to well up in us. Let us not quench the Spirit of God. But rather, as individuals, as families, as a church family, as a people, let us fall on our faces before Almighty God in a spirit of humility and repentance and surrender, and longing for his transformative 
and comforting presence cry out, Come, Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.